context in context, you need to know that the book of Revelation, once again, is written by the apostle John. A few facts about him. He's the only disciple present at the cross. You listening to me? Are you still getting settled from sitting down? He was the only disciple that was still present at the cross when Jesus was dying. The only disciple that stayed. All the other disciples feared that if they were present at the cross, that the Jews and the Romans would beat them to, arrest them to, and crucify them too. So out of fear, the rest of the disciples abandoned Jesus. Some of them left quietly. Some of them left cussing and denying like Peter saying, I never knew him. John was the only one that stayed. And there is something to be said for people who stay. The rest of the disciples were bound up in fear getting close to Jesus today while he's on the cross. It could mean that I die. And John said, well, if I die, I die, but I'm going to stay close to Jesus. It's interesting to notice the lives of the people that stay close and the lives of the people that drift away. It's interesting to notice the lives of the people that say, even though it's threatening to go to church right now, and even though the world is scared to go to church right now, I'm still going to stay close to Jesus. I happen to be very grateful this morning to be in a room full of people that have heard nonstop threats 24 hours a day, seven days a week for now about a year. And yet for whatever reason, you woke up this morning, you said, I'm going go get as close as I can to the presence of the Lord. John stayed and while he was there, Jesus gave John the care, the responsibility of his mother, Mary. He asked John to look after her and as a result, John put his own ministry and life on hold for 25 years to deal with Jesus' final item of business, taking care of, his, taking care of his mother. It's interesting to note that the Apostle John was the only apostle graced to become elderly. All of the other apostles were martyred. Now, it's not that, it's not that they didn't try to kill John. The Pharisees... And the Romans both tried to kill him several times, but every time they failed miserably. I've told you before, I'll say it again. They heated up a smoldering cauldron of boiling oil and they lowered John out down into it. But when he got into the oil, the oil cooled down. They left him there under an open flame, burning the pot for five hours, and the oil just wouldn't ever, wouldn't ever heat up. They took him out of that and led him over to the guillotine to try to behead him. Guillotine malfunctioned. So they brought in the archers, and they told the soldiers to take careful aim at him, and they fired at him, almost like a firing squad. None of the arrows hit him. Now they were scared to death of him. Some of the soldiers that had tried to kill him fell on their knees and converted to Christianity when they saw it. And so now everybody's scared of him. So they said, we'll feed him to the lions and let the lions finish the job. So they brought him to the Colosseum in front of thousands of people. 
and they took lions that they had starved and they loosed them on John and they came charging toward him. But when they, when they got close, they stopped. And one historian said, one of the lions started licking his toes like a puppy dog. John was a bad man. Now, I've often wondered, what was it? Paul was anointed, but they cut his head off. Peter was powerful. His shadow was falling on people and they were getting healed, but they crucified him upside down. Stephen was a great preacher, but they stoned him to death while he was preaching. And I wonder what was it that made it impossible for those people to kill John? And I, I believe it's because he was a worshiper. You read about John in the Gospels. All the other disciples are worried about business. John's always hugging over on Jesus, loving on Jesus, rubbing on Jesus, kissing on Jesus, telling Jesus how much he loved him. He was always worshiping. And there's a principle in the scripture you'll find from Genesis to Revelation. You'll never find a worshiper die while they're worshiping. I must say that again. You'll never find a worshiper die while... They're worshiping because worship pulls God into your circumstance. The Bible says he inhabits the praise and the worship of his people. And you can't cut off God from receiving something while he's receiving it just to kill me. So as long as I'm worshiping, there's a powerful supernatural force that I begin to commune with God and an exchange with God begins to happen. I give the worship and God comes down to receive it. And while he is receiving it, amazing things start to happen. And what's, what's beautiful about it is you don't, you don't even have to be holy. You don't even have to be righteous. You don't even have to be a good person to worship God. I heard some idiot preacher say, you know, anybody can praise, but it's, it's the holy ones that God receives worship from. I said, that ain't true. Do you remember the demoniac, the man of Gadara that had a legion of demons in him? This man is totally demon possessed and the demons inside him are eating away at his psyche and his identity. But the Bible says when that man saw Jesus, whatever part of his being was left, when that man recognized Jesus, the Bible said that the demon possessed man with a legion of devils in him ran to Jesus, fell down at his feet and began to worship him. You can always worship. Don't care what kind of mess you're in, what you got or what's got you. You can always worship. And when that man started worshiping Jesus with all those devils, Jesus started yanking devils out of that man and delivering him one step at a time. Or you remember the Syrophoenician woman, she was uh, a Gentile, and, and she didn't grow up with the covenants of, of Israel. She didn't grow up with the Torah. She didn't grow up with any background or any understanding, no teaching of God. She came to Jesus, and she said, my daughter's grievously vexed with the devil. He said, I'm sorry, honey. Right now, my ministry is aimed toward the lost sheep of the house of Israel, toward the Jews, and you're not the right color. That's what he told her. You're not the right race. You don't qualify right now. I can't take what's meant for the children and give it to the dogs. Look at me like that. That's the Bible. That's what he called her. 
And she had that cute, you know, response. Even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the master's table. But when she said that, read the text. He got up to leave, turned his back on her. But then she got down on her knees and started worshiping him. I'm talking about somebody that never went to Sunday school, somebody that didn't know the Ten Commandments, somebody that didn't know the names of God. She got down and started worshiping him. And when she started worshiping, he stopped, turned around, and gave her the miracle because worship is powerful. And I personally believe the reason they couldn't kill John is when they lowered him in the oil, he lifted his hand and started worshiping. When they tried to cut his head off, he stuck his head in the chopping block and he was uttering praise and worship to God. When they tried to shoot arrows at him, he began to praise and sing and worship God. And everything they did and everything they tried began to fail because worship breaks the enemy's plans. I'm going to say it again because somebody needs this understanding. I'm not trying to make you happy. I'm trying to make you think. Worship breaks the enemy's plans. It is something you do in the natural that has spiritual repercussions. I said it's something you do in the natural realm that has supernatural spiritual repercussions. And that's why I'm so concerned about the day and the age we're living in because more and more people are getting used to not going to church. More and more people are getting used to watching online. And I'm not coming against you if you're watching online, but you probably don't worship online like you worship when you're in the house of God. I'm sorry, it's not the same. Sitting on your couch you know, in your jammies, looking at your cell phone is not going to bring you into the same headspace and to the same intensity and to the same fervor and reverency as it does when you get yourself up, you brave against the fear, and you obey the commandment to come to the house of the Lord. I've been saying it for a year, and many of you left me, and frankly, I'm glad you left because I want people in this house that understand that coming to God's house is still a privilege. Coming to God's house is still a commandment. Coming to God's house is still a beautiful thing. There is still a commandment that says lift up your hands in the sanctuary. But, but I'm concerned about us because the enemy loves the climate our nation has been in for a year. Because inside of a climate of fear, he has had an excuse to pull multiplied hundreds of thousands of people away from worship. And he loves it because, again, worship breaks the plans of the enemy. When Bishop was worshiping and praising up here with so much force and fervor, when Pastor Katie was praising and the band was praising, there were things and plots over your life the enemy had scheduled for this week that the enemy had to watch God break into because you were standing there with your wrong self, with your guilty self, with your broken self, with your stressed out self. You were standing there and somehow the praise from up here reached you in your seat and you lifted up a hand and somehow the tune that was being sang up here got in your head and you lifted up your voice and when God saw the worship 
So because they couldn't boil him, shoot him, behead him, or get the lions to eat him, we got to do something with him. So they put him on a boat and sailed him to the prison island. Would have been like their Alcatraz type thing. The prison island of Patmos. And then they chained him inside of a cave called a grotto. While chained by his hands and feet, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That means on a Sunday morning, he woke up on the Lord's day and he got into the spirit. Now he's chained with his hands and feet. But he's also in the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and liberty uh, bound over here, but free over here. And in this one snapshot, John gives us the tension, the God prescribed tension. Of the believer. There will always be some areas that you're bound. That's hot preaching right there. You see all the people running and shouting. There's always going to be some areas you're bound. I'm not talking about being bound by the devil or bound in sin. In life, there's always going to be some area that you're bound. To be completely free in life. Let's talk about it in life. To be completely free in life means there's nothing attached to you. If you're single, there's a bondage to it. If you're married, why are you looking at me like that? There's a bondage to it. You can't go out and do whatever you want with whoever you want when you're married. There's a bondage to it. I don't know what you meant. That's what I meant. If you don't have children, there's a bondage to it. If you do have children, If you don't have a job, there's a bondage to it. But if you do have a job, there's a bondage to it. All of life is different forms of bondage. And God meant for us, God meant for us to use the escape route of the spirit to balance the bondage of the lives we live. So, but if you don't use the escape route of the spirit, you'll start trying to find other ways to escape. That's what that affair was. She wasn't that sexy. You were just trying to find a way of escape. That's what that 
That's what that alcoholism, that's what that is. It's not that you're a bad person or you have some weird mental disease. You're looking for a way to escape the bondage. That's what that inconsistency financially is. And those impulse purchases. You're looking for a way to escape the bondage. When God meant for us to deal with the fact to live in the fact, to exist in the tension, that there's some areas we'll be bound over here, but there's an area where we can always be loose, and John typifies it perfect. It gives us a perfect picture of it standing there in chains, and yet he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord begins to reveal himself to John in a beautiful way. He sees the risen Jesus as he looks in heaven. His feet were like brass burnt with fire. His eyes were ablaze. His hair was white and his voice sounded like the voice of many waters. Jesus said, I've got something I want to say. Get your pen. And in Revelations chapter two, he says to the angel of the church, at Ephesus. Now, this church you would recognize as the Ephesians. Ephesus was a port city, major importing and exporting. It was a hub of culture and technology and innovation in its day. Ephesus was one of the first cities to have street lights and to have paved, uh, cobblestone paved roads. It had a huge population considering biblical standards. 250,000 people called Ephesus their home. It was an amazing hub of culture and food and art and expression. And to plant the gospel of Jesus Christ in a city like Ephesus, it would be almost like our New York City today. To plant it in Ephesus meant that the ripples were going to hit the rest of the world. There were four bishops that had the grace of pastoring the church at Ephesus. Paul started the church, then passed it to his spiritual son, Timothy. Then Timothy passed it to this John we've been talking about. And after John's exile and arrest, John passed the church to Apollos. So Jesus has shown back up on the scene, revealing himself to a chained and imprisoned John and told him to pick up a pen and write a letter to his former church to the former pastor. And he says in verse one to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. I know your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. It may sound upon preliminary inspection of the text that we're eavesdropping on a conversation, an, an inside conversation, and we are. You must understand the church at Ephesus had very difficult challenges to overcome. Number one, there was 
massive cultural perversion going on in the city that the church was planted in. The false goddess Diana, the sex goddess, was the prevailing religion of the day in Ephesus that the church had to fight against. Diana had all of these temples situated around the city with pornographic images painted on the buildings and pornographic images made of gold. And in order to worship at that church, you had to go in and pay your tribute to a prostitute and sleep with her as an order of the service. This is the perversion, some of the perversion that the church at Ephesus was fighting. And then they had political pressure trying to pry its way into the church. I know that doesn't sound familiar. That's what they were dealing with. They had the, the religious right, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were self-righteous and only out for their own filthy lucre and gain. And then they had the Nicolaitans, the more liberal party who were focused on social justice but wanted morality to continue to go into decline. And both sides were trying to pressure the church in the middle to give them a nod of approval or a stamp of agreement. And then finally, they had false prophets and apostles among them who were getting on all types of forums and offering prophecies that were not true and stirring up the whole Christian community, telling the whole Christian community who their future leaders were going to be and telling the whole Christian community what was going to start happening in the nation and telling the whole Christian community in the name of God what the next nine months were going to look like, telling the whole Christian community what they could expect to see. And they were all found out to be liars. This was the kind of pressure bearing down on the church at Ephesus. And Paul told them in his farewell to them, he said, after my departure, I want you to be warned. Grievous wolves will come in. And grievous wolves will come from the outside. Grievous wolves will rise up from the inside. And I want you to know you're going to be attacked by grievous wolves. The grievous wolves on the outside were the culture they were surrounded by and the politicians trying to infiltrate the church. The grievous wolves from the inside were the false prophets and apostles that never heard from God, but just had a gift of gab and was good up on a stage, and people liked the way they look, and they liked the way they sounded. And Paul said, both of those systems are going to try to infiltrate the church and rip apart the beauty of what we're really about, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul left the church at Ephesus with a sword in their hand. It was in Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and taking up the sword of the spirit and above all, the shield of faith. That's the footing that Paul left the church on. Honey, when I go, 
a bleeding heart pastor, tears streaming down his face, knowing he's about to go. When I go, the wolves are going to come. I told my mom I'm making certain preparations for my sons now because when daddy dies, when I die, I know there's a lot of wolves that are going to come. And that was Paul's heart, his sentiment. When I go, when I'm not here to beat the devil off of you, both from the inside and the out, when I'm not here, the wolves are coming. So get your weapons out. Timothy had to pastor up under that banner. John himself pastored under that banner. And now Apollos, he, he's, he's pastoring a church that's been fighting so long. They've now accepted fighting as normal. He's talking to a church that has stood for so long. They have resisted for so long that they know no other way of life, no other way of making it happen. And he says in verse 2, I know your works. When he says that, that's what he's talking about. I know your works. I know how you've labored. I know your patience. I know you cannot bear those that are evil. That's the wolves coming from the outside, the culture. The perversion. He said, I know you can't bear it and you've worked to keep yourself away from it. That's the, the political voices trying to infiltrate the church and manipulate you for a vote. He said, I know you've worked to keep politics out of your most holy faith. He said, I know you've worked. And then he says, and I know you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. That's the wolf coming from the inside. He said, I know you've been careful to hunt that wolf out, sniff it out, realize it for what it is, and shut it down. And you've had patience for my namesake, and you've not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Amazing grouping of verses. You fought hard. You've stood. Or, you know, maybe like you, you kept coming to church through a pandemic and in a time of fear. You resisted the enemy. You resisted his lies. You've stood. You've worked. You've been patient. You're not weary. But in the process of fighting so hard, your heart got hard. And I feel bad for them because it's hard to fight and love at the same time. I put this church on a war footing last year. But I feel bad for you because it's hard to love and fight at the same time. And the reality for their church and for this one is tough seasons can cause you to close your heart down and become cynical and jaded and cold because in the midst of the toughness you've seen 
too much. Anybody in here ever seen too much? Isn't it amazing how jaded you can get when you see too much? Isn't it amazing how heartless you can become when you've had to fight for so long? And the reality is everyone in the room has been in some kind of fight for the last year. And many times it's the same fight, but the battlefield just changes. If it's not your health, it's your finances, not your finances, your family, not your family, your mind. And it's just like every day it is a nonstop onslaught. And it's hard to fight that much and stay tender. And so Jesus says to them, I've noticed you've been busy working for me. I noticed you've still been coming. I noticed you've still been showing up and standing. But I'm concerned about how far your heart has moved from me. I've noticed in my life, it is so difficult to grow older without growing colder. And it's amazing how it happens so gradually. It's like a divorce. Uh, when the divorce papers are signed, the divorce papers do not separate the couple. The couple been separated long time before the papers were filed. It's like when people leave a church, they come to me and meet with me and say, we just want to let you know we're going to leave. They left a long time ago. You know, silly rabbit. Don't you know I can feel in my spirit when you disconnect from my covering? They didn't leave at the meeting. They left a long time ago. People leave before they leave. They go before they go. And Jesus shows up to the church at Ephesus and he said, you're still here. Just not your heart. Still working, still serving. But what you used to do out of passion, now you do out of responsibility. Verse five, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works. That's a strange word. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. One translation says, remember the great height that you've fallen from. And it's, it's odd to me because I've had a few bad falls. And one thing that all my bad falls have in common, like I, I fell off my four-wheeler when I was, you know, a teenager. I, I fell off of a roof one time. I fell off of a ladder. And the common thing with all the bad falls I've ever had is I remember every one of them. Could you forget a great fall unless you didn't fall all at once? Unless it was a gradual fall so slow that the love you have for God was slowly disappearing and you didn't even notice it. It's 
odd question. Remember from where you've fallen. They've, he's talking about love. You've lost your first love. Where have they fallen? They've, they've fallen out of love with God. Imagine that. Imagine that. Falling out of love, no longer approaching the things of God with the passion, excitement, and genuine joy that you used to. Falling. Falling out of love. He says you've left your first love. I want you to remember the great height that you've fallen. What do you do when you lose love? If you lost a child, you can issue an Amber Alert. If you lost an adult, you can fill out a missing persons report. If you lost an object, you can post a picture of it on Facebook and offer a reward. But with something as ambiguous as love, what do you do when you've lost love? How do you, re how do you recover it? What's it matter anyway in light of the grace of God? When Jesus was teaching about lostness, and specifically about love. In Luke chapter 15, he gives three stories to illustrate the principle. The first story is a woman who had a set of 10 coins, but she lost one of them. Now, we misunderstand the placement and the importance of lost things. When we think of lost things, we think of lost value. You understand what I mean? So she had a set of 10 coins and she lost one. And most people are only thinking about the one they lost. But the truth of the matter is the lost coin still had all the value that it ever had before it was lost. If I lose a dollar, it's still a dollar. It's just not my dollar anymore. When she lost the coin, the coin did not lose its value. What lost value was the set of 10. Now it's no longer a set. Now she has lost the value of all of the nine. All of the nine have been devalued because of the loss of one. Because the set is important. You hear me, my members watching online? The set is important. That's why you don't buy 11 eggs. It's because the set is important. It's why you don't go to the store and buy one shoe. It's because the set is important. And the rest of us, our value can be increased or decreased determining on if there's the full set in the place. I hate to admit that I need you, but I do. There's something about a church that fully comes together in unity. Now, the coin is an inanimate object. It doesn't know it's lost. So all of the responsibility is on the woman. 
She's got to get a broom out. She's got to sweep the house. She has to take responsibility to recover what has been lost. Jesus is teaching. You'll never get back what you lost unless you take responsibility yourself for finding it. That you've got to stop blaming other people for why you're in the cold spiritual condition that you're in. You've got to stop blaming other people for why you're not reading your Bible the way you should or praying the way you should or worshiping the way you should or for God's sake going to church the way that you should. You've got to stop blaming other people and realize that the responsibility of recovery is on you and you alone. So she sweeps the house. She finds the coin. The set is restored. The values return. Second story. You got a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. Loses one. Interesting teaching Jesus is doing here. We've gone from a 10% loss from the woman with the coin. She had 10. She lost one 10% loss. Okay. But now we've moved to a 1% loss. He had a hundred sheep. He lost one. And yet, God is so concerned about a 1% loss that the shepherd looks at the 99 sheep and says, regardless of your value, since that one is missing, I have to leave you here and I have to go search for that one and get it back. Revealing to us that not one part of your spiritual life is it okay with God if you lose. Not one part of your life. If you lost your prayer life, you need to be like that shepherd and say, I'm going to go find it until I get it back. If you've lost your worship life, you need to be like that shepherd and say, I got to go find it till I get it back. Nobody's going to come get it back for me. If you've lost your love of picking up the word, you need to be like that shepherd and say, I'm going to go search for it and find it until I get it back. It's your responsibility. The sheep, unlike the coin, is a living being. And the sheep could recognize it wasn't with the group. The sheep could recognize that it was lost, but the sheep could not remember how to get back home. All the responsibility falls on the shepherd. Finally, after the lost coin, after the lost sheep, Jesus moves to the most emotional of the stories and tells the story of the lost son. That a man had two sons. That the younger came to his father and said, I want you to give me the portion of goods that I'm going to inherit. I want you to give it to me now. And I'm going to leave. And the older brother decided to stay. And the younger brother represents people that have fallen in love with the blessings of God more than they have the blesser. That their faith revolves and their obedience revolves around a give me attitude. What can you give me today? And they love what God does more than the God that does what he does. And so he takes, he takes his inheritance and he goes to a far country and the son is lost. Most people think the father lost the son. Father never lost. He loved the son before he left. He loved the son the day he left. He loved the son the day he got home. The father never lost his love. It was the son 
that lost his love for the father. He walked away from his father while his arms were wide open. He was lost on the inside. He had lost the love. He had moved in his heart. But unlike the coin and unlike the sheep, the prodigal son did have a memory. And Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, there's two things that can fix this problem. Number one is you got to remember. And I don't know about you. I get so sick and tired of coming to church for people who got amnesia and can't remember how good God has been to them. I get so tired of talking to self-righteous people who are putting other people down because of their failures and their sins. And while they're telling me about this other person that God needs to just destroy, I'm remembering in my mind the time when they messed up themselves. And it's amazing to me how they got amnesia and forgot what a failure they used to be and how God picked them up anyway, forgave them of their sins, strengthened them and raised them all the way up. And now you got the nerve to be judgmental against somebody else. How is it possible? You got amnesia. You can't remember right. It gets so bothersome to me to watch people refuse to praise the Lord in his house and refuse to give him worship because I remember your prayer requests and your testimonies and your midnight phone calls. Pastor, will you please pray for me? They say they're going to kick me out of the apartment and the same people that used to say, I'm worried they're going to kick me out of the apartment. Have a house of your own right now. God's given you blessing. God's given you strength. God's kept your family strong. God's kept your children. God's healed your body. How is it that we can get? Push your neighbor. Say you got amnesia. You're so depressed this morning because you got amnesia. You're so worried about your future this morning because you got amnesia about the God that brought you out of so much in the past. You're so fearful because you forgot he is the same God. The same God that hell I feel like preaching. I said the same God that answered your last prayer. The same God that answered the last 911 call. The same God is still the same God. But somehow this thing we go through called life causes us to, to forget. We forget his mercy. We forget where we were when he found us. We forget the state that our mentality and paradigm used to be in. I know you don't think like that anymore, but you sure as hell used to. And for some of you, God has been bringing you out and untying your knots for years. And you finally arrived at a place of wholeness. And forgot where you came from. Why are you sitting there looking at me? You ain't that special. If it could happen to the church in Ephesus. Paul was their pastor. Timothy was their man of God. John 
was their apostle. And yet somehow they stayed in that red, hot, powerful church and grew cold in their hearts. So cold it took the risen, resurrected, glorified Jesus in his glorified state to get up off his throne, come down to Patmos and tell John, write a letter for me. After making that trip from the royal diadem of heaven sitting on the throne and arriving back on the earth that he had conquered by Calvary's cruel cross, what did Jesus have on his mind? What was the first order of business? Was it who we need to vote for? Was it this one's going to win the election and the people of God are going to be saved by my mighty cape that I'm going to throw over the nation? Was it the church needs to stand against these sins? I know you don't want to talk to me this morning. I don't care. What was on his mind? The love that had leaked out of their hearts. Not toward church, their heart toward him. Is it possible you love your church more than you love Jesus? Is it possible you love serving at the food pantry more than you really love Jesus? Is it possible y'all love singing about Jesus more than you love Jesus? Is it possible you love praying more than you love the one you're praying to? What was on his mind was what they had lost. Now, the Nicolaitans would say it was social issues. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would say, no, it's these three moral issues that need to be banned in our country. The false prophets would say, look at me, give me some money and I'll give you a word. But his mind wasn't on any of it. His mind was on their, their hearts. What's an apostolic prophetic message sounds like? Sounds like this. God told me to come in here and tell you he's concerned about what's going on in your heart. You want to hear a word? You just heard one. You want to hear a prophet? You just heard one. He's concerned about what's going on. It's amazing to me how we can make him be so many things that he is not. 
eloquent, gifted pulpiteers, strong writers, can slowly cause the vessel to drift from the course he charted. So over 30 years after he stood on the hillside in Jerusalem, blessed his disciples and told them to go and baptize and to preach the gospel and to start the church and he ascended into heavens on the clouds. 30 years after that day, he comes back to the earth he created, walks through the ocean spray of the beach of Patmos Island, peers into the cave, inspects the iron his voice created, wrapping around the wrists of his servant. And he said, I've got something to tell you. It's about your heart. I still see your heart. I've seen your works. I admit that. I've seen your faithfulness. I saw how you kept the bad wolves out and how you pushed down the wolves that came from within. I, I've seen it all. You've done good. You've done real good. You've done real good. But do you love me? <laughs> It's like if you really love your spouse and you come home and they've done all the works, they've taken out the trash, they've done the dishes, they've cooked, they've, they've done, set everything right with the kids. But, but, when, but when you embrace them, there's that distance. There's that block. And you realize through the hug and embrace, the love's not where it used to be. Doesn't matter that all the works are done. I'd rather a sink full of dishes and a passionate kiss. Amen. And some of you are still doing the works. But heaven misses your kiss. So he picked me up in his hand. That's what makes me special. Ain't nothing special about Jason. What makes me special is his hand. And he said, today, boy, I'm going to squeeze some things out of you to say to them. Now you take it. I said it. You take it. And you put it where it needs to go. The altar's open if you need it. If you're not scared of what other people will think about you. The altar's open if you need it. If you feel something in your heart wooing and beckoning you and calling you to connect to him again, it's open. The presence of God is here. 
There's a beauty. There's an anointing in the sanctuary. I don't know who will use it. I don't know who will seek after it. But it's here. But however you do it, however you proceed from the things I've shared with you today, so long as you know, so long as you know what was on his mind at the Isle of Patmos is what's on his mind this morning. He's thinking about your heart measuring what's still there and what's been lost. And the tragedy is, I can see it in so many of your faces now. You can preach a message that is so perfectly suited for person A but the whole time you're preaching person A thinks you're talking about person B whether you realize it or not this message is for you wherever you're standing wherever you're sitting whatever you're going through this word from God is for you So whether you stay seated or you stand or you turn around and make your chair an altar, whatever you do, I want to challenge you to search your heart. Remember from where you have fallen and repent. Reconnect to him again. It's his instruction to his church. It's his instruction to his people. It's the answer for what's plaguing you. It's the thing that needs to happen. It's the antidote for the poison connect to him again. Play band as people begin to pray and call out to God. Pray, pray, pray. Call out to him again. Open up your heart. Open up your mouth. Open up your spirit. Examine yourself before the Lord. This isn't about a person praying for you. This is about you praying for yourself.